you. <laughs> All right. Wow. That was amazing. <clears throat> ah. Okay. Change gears. <laughs> Let's pray again, can we? Father, we thank you uh, that we can come into your presence through worship. What a, what a wonder uh, that uh, through singing as the songs about you, that you, we experience you. We thank you for that, Lord. But we also thank you for your word that our minds and our lives can be transformed as we behold your, your word to us. And so we turn to that now in Jesus' name. Amen. And speaking on relativism and how to live morally in an amoral world. And uh, amoral, by the way, I, I don't think I've ever explained that. Amoral means just it's like atheist. Uh, a means not or none. Uh, so uh, to say something is amoral means that they have no morals. Um, <clears throat> just like someone who's atheist doesn't believe in a God. Um, and we're called to live morally. We're called to live according to a moral standard. But the world we live in doesn't have a moral standard. And actually what's, what's developed over the years and what's accepted primarily now is what's called relativism. And that, uh, well, whatever is right for you is good for you, but for me it's different. And so that's what we've been addressing. Jesus uh, responded pretty clearly to this idea in John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus understood that he was being definitive there. He understood what it meant to say, I am the way, not a way. He was a smart guy. <laughs> All right. Those little, little words didn't throw him off. <clears throat> He's making a very powerful truth that... He, through his person, that no one comes to the Father except through me. And, and even in that, he calls God the Father, and that there's a fatherly relationship. Um, and so we have to encounter the reality of Jesus' statement. And ultimately, it comes down to, are you a follower of Jesus who claims exclusivity and being the way, or, or not? The relative uh, truth and relative morality uh, is uh, the predominant philosophical or uh, viewpoint ideology in our society. And it really has been around, you know, when Jesus said that he was confronting the same uh, issue that we confront today. Relativism isn't new. It's just taken on different forms and different uh, words to describe it. But there's always been uh, this type of debate. And he encountered it with Pilate. So when Jesus was saying this, he was confronting this idea that there are many paths. Or there, and he said, no, I'm the way. I'm the only way. Uh, relative truth and relative morality. You know, if everyone is true, basically it's saying there is no truth at all. If everyone is true, there isn't anything such as ultimate or absolute truth. And uh, uh, it breaks down really quickly if you, if you try to, to carry it out. <clears throat> I said uh, last week that it's the ultimate in orphan thinking because they don't have a father. All right? Orphan thinking is, is uh, that you're all on your own to figure it out. And rather than parading that as some great freedom, recognize it for what it really is. It means that you have no one to look to, no one to give you direction. And the whole world is that way. It's fatherless because they've rejected the Father. But Jesus is saying, no, I am the way, 
and I'll lead you to the Father. And so, in essence, it's orphan thinking. And it's just logically not, not, not true. Uh, it's not applicable. Relativism, kind of summarizing uh, over. I'm going to summarize a few points, make another point, and then at the end, if we have time, I'm going to take a question or two. Uh, relativism is not really applicable to the material world. This is another reason. One is that if everything, the first reason it doesn't make sense is that if, if everybody's right, then really nobody's right because there is no right. It's rejecting the idea of, of right uh, out of hand. It's not applicable. It doesn't work in the material world. In other words, natural law, you know, the law of gravity uh, doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't care what you, if you believe in it or not. You step off a 50 story building, you're going to hit the ground. Right. Uh, You know, if you submerge someone underwater for 10 minutes, they're going to die. It doesn't matter whether they believe they're going to die or not. You hold them underwater long enough, they're going to die. Right. And so there are absolutes. In fact, the whole of science is built on the premise uh, from years ago that because there is order that we can gain understanding by observing and testing uh, the, the the world, and that's how we've gotten to the point where we can figure out how to build computers. Because if you do this and do this and do this, you'll have the same result. Look at all of all of civilization is built on the understanding that uh, the universe works according to an order, and that we can we can build things that take advantage of this. And so uh, the idea of moral and truth relativism just doesn't fit with the whole of the universe, uh, and it's not consistent with real life. Okay, if you tell your kid <clears throat> that he's, he or she is not to have a cookie, and they eat the cookie, and you said, "I told you not to have a cookie," and the kid says, "Was the cookie real?" <laughs> he just goes, "There is no cookie." And you say, "There is, <laughs> there is my hand." <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> Or however you use to discipline your children. Don't give me that. <laughs> All right. A moral relativist would say, well, you know, it's up to the child to decide whether or not they, they should eat the cookie. Think about it. Does that work in real life? Hey, kids, whatever you want to do today, it's fine. Figure it out. What, what happened? They'd eat all the cookies. You wouldn't have any. All right. That's just, it's just not, it doesn't work with real life. Okay. That's the point. It's not real life. You know, if it doesn't work on that level, it's just not true. And, the, and most of all, and the most important part, is that it's not reflective of God's character. You know, I can bandy about some philosophical terms, but I'm not a philosopher. I'm a preacher. And I'm here to represent Jesus Christ. Okay, and you need to understand this too. When people bring up relativism, or when it gets brought up in your own mind, you need to understand the answer is Jesus Christ. We can understand things, and it's okay to, to, to learn enough of philosophy to understand what they're saying and, and to understand how to process it. But ultimately, it's not a philosophical debate. It's a debate about if you believe Jesus or if you don't. The problem uh, with relativism, uh, the, the difficulty and the danger of it is not because it's, it's ridiculous or out of hand untrue. It's because it's almost true. So there's a reason relativism is so predominant. It's because it's almost true. Right? Uh, and there's lots of things. In fact, there are many, many things in life that are relative or dependent upon our culture. 
and our language and the circumstance. All right. So there's in fact, just about everything in your life is actually determined not by you, but by where you were born, to who you were born uh, and the, the, the day you were born, uh, you know, the, the, the era that you were born in. And so all, most of the decisions you have to make uh, are really only because you live in America or what have you. And people born in Somalia, I mean, they have a whole different set of decisions, don't they? And so uh, there is a truth that so much of life is, is relative upon our culture, upon our uh, circumstances, upon our, our language, upon our uh, genealogy. But uh, it's a corruption of this truth to say that because some things or even most things are relative, that there is no objective truth. Okay, it's a it's a corruption of the truth to say there's no objective truth. Just because so many things are relative, right? There's another thing. God relates to each person individually, doesn't he? So in that sense, your relationship with God is relative. Because your relationship with God is different than the relationship with God next to you. But that doesn't mean that everything's relative or that God is relative. You see, because God is the absolute, and he has a relationship with you, and he has a relationship with someone else, and there's difference. But the, the actual, the ability to have a word called relative is dependent upon the idea of absolute. Okay? Because if there were no absolutes, there would be no such thing as relative. Okay? Does that make sense? It's like dark. Dark is the absence of light. It doesn't exist without light. Right? The reason we have, we have the term dark is not, it's, it's not something of itself. It's just a lack of light. <clears throat> and so the fact that there is conditional, and what I like to say is that uh, um, rather than relative, it's, it's better to say dependent. You know, a lot of things is, in our lives are dependent upon our culture or dependent upon our circumstances. Because you know what? It is true to say everything in the world is dependent. Because ultimately, everything is dependent upon the Creator, upon God. Okay? And so they pick the word relative to kind of disguise it. But the truth is, everything's dependent. My ability to communicate you, with you is dependent on our shared understanding of the language English. All right? And everything is dependent ultimately on God. But God's given us the, the intellect, the ability, and the wisdom to, ex- to see beyond our limitations. Okay, beyond our cultural dependencies. All right, it's not very difficult. It happens all the time. I can relate to people. When I go to Japan, I'll be in Japan next Sunday. I'll be preaching to a, a, a crowd of, of Japanese people, Filipinos, and Brazilians. Believe it or not, you know, all those cultures, radically different upbringing, and I'm going to be able to share truths that they will understand. Because overcoming those obstacles is actually a very easy thing. And it makes us better. It's a strength. It's not a weakness. Does that make sense? And so relativism, the premise of relativism is that we can't understand truth because of our differences is ludicrous. It's actually overcoming those differences, seeing beyond those, comparing different things that helps us understand what is true, that absolute, even better and easier. All right? So things are dependent is a better way to explain that rather than relative, because that is a loaded term. Jesus is the truth. And if we believe that He is the truth, 
uh, it, you could say that truth isn't relative in this sense. Truth is relational in that you are operating in truth if you're in relationship with He who is the truth. All right? And so it's in your relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the definition of truth. Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32, He says, Jesus said to those Jews who believed, they were, had already gotten to the place where they believed in Him. They had a relationship. They confessed faith in Jesus Christ. He said, if you abide in My Word, you are My disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So there's freedom that comes through knowing truth, but truth comes through abiding. What does that word mean? It means living in, dwelling, remaining. Just like I abide at 617 Brigham Street. Okay, That's my house. I live in it. So if you live in Jesus' teaching, if you live in Christ, and many other places through Scripture, that we live in Christ, is that we live in Him. Relationally, we are in relationship with objective truth. And, 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 and that makes us able to know truth is because we know Jesus. He is, he is the truth. Je, uh, Jesus also said um, in John 3, 3, He answered uh, to those who were listening to Him, He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus was talking to a Jewish scholar. <clears throat> And Jesus said, unless you're born again, unless, until you come into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, that's what the term born again means, you can't see the kingdom of God. And this is where truth is experiential. It's not propositional. It's not just a list of facts that you have to memorize and you'll be able to figure everything out. You can't even see the truth until you're born again. Until you come into this relationship, it, 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 you, you, you can't perceive it. It, it doesn't come in other places. It says it doesn't come through understanding. All right, uh, it comes through relationship. And so the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the way uh, the the whole universe really works, actually can't be grasped except through relationship. You can know a lot of facts about it, and this is where scientists can study, and, and even philosophers and and other people of other religion. And, and every religion is based on a multitude of truths because they're not blind. The Bible says that his, his characteristics are openly displayed. But they don't put them together in the right order. Or they don't understand where they, they lead to until they've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He brings the definition. And that's what he meant when he said, I am the truth. So, as we're debating with or was you're talking with people that embrace relativism, or more importantly, I think, in your own mind as you deal with relativism. And, and my family and I were, were watching a television show, and, and it was as, as clear as a bell. I mean, they presented this, this religious, obnoxious guy basically enslaving people, and the good guys were saying, uh, well, you know, it's, it's what you believe, you know. And one person was dying, and she, and she was like, oh, you know, I don't believe in these false gods, but right now I just want one of those gods to come and save me. And he says, well, you know, we know that whatever you believe, you know, that has power. I said, that's relativism. It's just snuck in in a storyline. And you're rooting for them. And they sneak in a philosophical truth. If you're not, you're not, if you're not conscious 
<laughs> you know, you'll miss it. And it just gets one of those things get layered in. And I can enjoy the show and go, look, at guys, that was relativism. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe. The power isn't in some God. It's just in the fact that you believe. The power of positive thinking. Well, jump off a building and think real positively. Okay? <clears throat> All right? There's a point where positive thinking does have effect. But there's also a truth that overcomes circumstances. Amen? All right. <clears throat> now, every time I brought up uh, uh, relativism, uh, people have brought this scripture up. Because there's some aspects, again, like I said, there's some aspects that are uh, relational or relative or conditional. And so Romans 14, 14 was one of these verses. It says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus, is Paul writing to the church in Roman in Rome. It says, I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. So that scripture right there says I can I can I can, you know, get drunk, I can use drugs, because as long as I don't think it's unclean, uh, then it's not unclean. I'm like, wait just a minute here. Right? That is not the intention of what Paul is writing. Because in order to understand this verse, you need to look at the context. What is he writing about? He goes on. He says, you can read actually the whole uh, beginning of uh, the chapter is about uh, um, what to eat and the observance of certain days as religious holidays. Okay, Those are the two issues. Observance of religious holidays and religious dietary laws. Um, <clears throat> and also pagan um, the Christians in that day, there was two forces at play. There were the uh, uh, Jews, uh, Judaizers, who were telling Gentile Christians that they had to follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And then there was, which Paul says that they don't apply to non-Jewish believers, and then there was uh, uh, the common practice in that day that everybody was religious and they would offer sacrifices to pagan gods, to idols. And what we don't know, because we don't do this in our culture, is almost all sacrifices were killed and cooked and then were eaten by the people who presented them in a celebratory meal. Most of the uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament were too. Only the whole burnt offerings and certain other sacrifices were not eaten. Okay, It was part of the celebration. <clears throat> and so believers would go to their neighbor's house, be invited to a meal, and they'd pull out this, this hunk of uh, beef or, or lamb or whatever, and uh, say thanks to some pagan god and had been offered to them. And the Christians were like, oh, I can't eat this. And so that was the issue. Should I eat it or shouldn't I eat it? Is it, is it a sin to eat that? That Paul is addressing those two issues. <clears throat> he says, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer uh, walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of uh, as evil. For the kingdom of God, first of all, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Okay, Paul really quickly brings the argument, brings the, the question, what should I eat? What's right to eat and what's wrong to eat? He brings it down to the point of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Okay? In other words, how does this issue interact with the truth of Christ dying on the cross for your sin and His resurrection? It's not about what I can get away with. And as long as you look at this Scripture in the eyes of what can I get away with, you cannot fulfill this Scripture. It is void to you. Okay? And He says, don't destroy with your food 
what you eat, the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken evil of. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not defined by what you eat or what you drink. But in righteousness, in peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now this doesn't say, it doesn't matter what you eat and drink. What it says is, righteousness is the defining fact. Okay, is the defining point. Is it righteous what you're doing? And part of that is a consideration of your conscience and the effect that it has on the people you're with. That's what righteousness is about. Peace, being at peace with God. And being at peace with others. And joy in the Holy Ghost. Does it produce joy? Or does it grieve the Holy Ghost? People that use this verse to eat or drink or do things that grieve the Holy Ghost. And use this verse as an excuse for behavior that grieves God are going to come and find out a very... They're going to be confronted by the Holy Ghost. And they're going to be confronted by Jesus. And, and you don't want to do that, alright? For the kingdom, uh, it's good. For he who serves Christ, serves Christ. What are, what's the motivation? Serving Jesus in these things. What things? Righteousness, peace, and joy <clears throat> is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. So the, 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 the purpose of the verse is not, again, what we can get away with, but what will edify those we're with. It's not about me. It's about Jesus and helping those around us become stronger and more built up in their faith. And I don't want to do anything that would weaken their faith. That's the point of the passage. This is how you understand well, what, what is okay and what's not okay. I'm telling you. okay, This is it. What's going to edify the What's going to build them up? Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure. In that sense, he's saying. But it's evil for the man who eats with offense. If you eat something, even though it's technically okay, but it brings an offense, you're violating the kingdom of God. It is good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or made weak. In other words, you're motivated out of care and concern for others. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. And the issue here in particular is um, if you're around people uh, that would be offended in their faith if you ate of pagan uh, meat that was offered to an idol, then don't eat when they're around. But when you're at home you know, and they're not around, you know that it's been sanctified through prayer and it's holy and you can do it with a clear conscience and it's okay. It's not a double standard. It's being, it's being submitted. It's being serving them. Uh, living in a way that, that strengthens their faith and doesn't weaken it. Happy is he. This verse I learned early in my Christian walk. And I'm telling you, if you live by this, you'll avoid a lot of pain in your life. Happy is he who does not, who does not condemn himself or herself in what he approves. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And many a Christian end up condemned because they approve things that they should not have approved of. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. He's saying if, if someone is, eats even though they think it's, it's against their conscience, then that's sin for them. Alright? So conscience is 
a very important fact. You, you need to pay attention to your own conscience, and you need to pay attention to the conscience of those around you. <clears throat> it says, for whatever is not from faith is sin. What does that mean? Does that mean, well, everything's relative? No. It means that whatever does not proceed from your relationship of trust and love with the Lord Jesus Christ is sin. From faith is sin. That doesn't mean that, hey, God's not going to send me to hell just because I get drunk once in a while. God, <clears throat> God's not going to condemn me to hell if I swear or if I steal or if I use a little drugs. Because, you know, I have faith in God. I believe in Jesus. If you use that verse in this way, you are violating every principle of Scripture. Okay? Because that's not what it says. It says, whatever does not flow from that relationship, whatever is not a fruit and a manifestation of your faith relationship with Jesus Christ is sin. You can do good things and they can be sin because they're not flowing from your relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you do evil things and say, it's because God's given me liberty to do that, and it's things that violate God's character, then it's between you and God. And God's going to win. <laughs> okay? It's not between you and me, unless it comes up in my presence and I might talk to you about it. All right? <clears throat> so that's what that means. It needs to flow from sin. All right. And we need to understand the context that this is a ritual law and paganism. And the goal is love and not abusing personal freedom. Listen, another scripture. I want to get through these uh, quickly. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 13 says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And this is what I see in our day. See, the Christian church has, 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 has lowered the level to such a degree that there isn't a level. Okay? In, in, in our attempt to be accommodating, we've accommodated sin and unrighteousness and we've actually gotten into condemnation. Uh, it says, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. These issues were around when Paul wrote this. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's not like an exhaustive list. That's just a partial list. And some of these things may be socially more acceptable in our day. But you know what? In the kingdom of God, none of them are acceptable. Okay? Extortioners. You know, the Wall Street guy who takes advantage of people's retirement income. Just as evil as the sodomite in God's eyes. And the covetous or the drunkard. And such were some of you. In other words, it's out of those lifestyles that we've been saved. And these people have been saved. God redeems. That's what we're made of. That's what the church is made of. People that struggled with those things and found freedom. This is where, as Christians, we represent a God that gives freedom from those things. We don't have to condone behavior that is ungodly in order to win them. What won them was the pronouncement of a kingdom that where they can be set free from the things that held them bondage. That's why that changed the world. It says, uh, <clears throat> you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of a God, our God. And then again, he says the same idea. All things are lawful to me, but all things are not helpful. 
All things are lawful to me, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. So anything, even if it's a lawful thing, food is good, but if you, if you, if you uh, become, it becomes an idol in your life, it can actually lead to hell. If it's more of an authority in your life than Jesus Christ. Come on. All right, Money is good, but if you worship it, it's an idol. And anything that you come under the power of becomes an idol because you're not under the power. And I love how Paul says, it says, food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Wait till the ultimate end. It says, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And, and, and the policy, uh, people misunderstand Christianity in that we um, diminish the value of sexuality or diminish the value of, of, of our physical bodies. No, man. True, authentic Christianity makes your body a temple of God. Okay? And sexuality, the ultimate expression of intimacy between two people, which is the picture, the ultimate uh, intimacy that we will have with, with the Lord Jesus. Not in a carnal sexual way, but in an emotional and a deep way, in a way we don't understand yet. <clears throat> so, um, Christian freedom... Uh, let, me, let me finish... Did I finish that? Yeah, sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Christian freedom does not allow what is clearly forbidden here and elsewhere. In other words, this verse, all things are lawful, comes right after this list of all these things that guarantee you will not go to heaven. Okay? So that means Paul wasn't like changing his mind mid-verse. Okay? He's He's saying even lawful things can bring you into condemnation and into a trap. Um, if you're brought under the control of it. Um, Isaiah says it clearly. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And that's what relativists do. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Proverbs 14.12 There's a way that seems right to man, but the way of, is the end of but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 12.15 The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he who heeds counsel is, is wise. Proverbs 16.2 All the ways of a man are, right, are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. And so, I think that the last point I want to make, and I'll open up just for one question. I'm already out of time, but if there's a question I want to give a little time for, is, for that, is the idea of future judgment. Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament sums up the book that Solomon writes about his experiences and his search for truth ends with this. So let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is humankind, man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Oh, that's Old Testament. Okay. Jesus said, Matthew 25, 31... When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another. It's going to be individual. And Jesus is going to do it personally as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. You say, oh, that's, that's salvation. And I'm saved through the, the cross. That's right. And even if you're saved... And justified through faith in Christ, you'll still have to give an account for your deeds because we find in, in Corinthians as well as in Revelations the judgment of the believer. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
Writing the Christians, Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Okay? So, every act, thought, and word that you allow your body to do, you will give account for to Jesus Christ. And you will receive accordingly. Well, what does that mean? We'll find out, won't we? <laughs> I know this. Once you come to Jesus and give Him your life and you're baptized, you're cleansed of all sin. You no longer have to sin. Sin has no power over you. So any sin that you commit as a believer, you are doing it willfully. And it will have consequence. Will it keep you from heaven? Not if you have faith in Jesus dying on the cross. He's going to save you. That's how we're saved. That's how we get into heaven. And there's a point. Is there a point where you can lose that? Well, you can debate whether you lose it or you never had it. All I know is that you're going to stand before Jesus and you're either going to be a sheep or a goat. And if you're a goat, you go to your you're goat. We'll deal with that. We're going to talk about heaven and hell next year in January. <clears throat> but if you go to heaven, there's, there's a second appointment with Jesus. Where he says, he says, I'm the truth. And this is your encounter with truth. I communicated my truth to you. How did you live it? Let's talk about this. Well, how is he going to have the time? Why? Well, he's eternal. He <laughs> said, what are we going to do in heaven for eternity? <laughs> Appear before Jesus one by one. So what are you doing now? Are you preparing for that? Or are you pretending it's not going to happen? See? See, I'm, I, I, I will deal with my issues. And I will deal with whether I've presented this truth accurately to you. But it's up to you with how you deal with it. Okay? I'm not the enforcer. Jesus is the enforcer. But He will. So one question, let me just a question about relativity, about relativism and not comments or commentaries. If you want to write a commentary, write a blog. But if you have a question that maybe brings this down to how do you encounter this in your life? Have you encountered this? You know, or I just want to give freedom. Sorry. Everybody's scared. <laughs> Ever encounter relativism? All right. Or email me. Something I said bugs you? you know, I might not answer it. <laughs> I might. Uh, but this is, a, this is an issue that is gripping our culture, and we need to understand how to respond. And you don't respond by just arguing philosophy. You respond with the person of Jesus Christ. And you have to say, I understand what you're saying, and I'm not going to argue with that. But I met someone whose name is Jesus Christ. And this is what he did in my life. And I believe that you and I and everyone, and I'm not better than you. I'm, I'm not the one who decides truth. I gave that up when I met Jesus, because he is the truth. And all of a sudden, you're not the defender of truth anymore. You're just saying, this is what Jesus said. And I may be wrong. But this is, this is what Jesus... Why don't you look what Jesus said? <laughs> you do that, people get saved. Pretty soon, they, 
they're they're arguing with you and not against you. All right, uh, Sarah has some announcements. God bless you all.